This is Limitless Possibility. I'm Yannick Mania. And I'm Luc Olivier Dumeble. And our topic this week is... WWDC Recap Extravaganza. Awesome. Uh, lots of stuff happened at WWDC. I'm very excited to get into that. But first, I think we have some follow-up? Yes, we do. Uh, I guess I'll start then? No, you do. You do. Yes, we do. But I meant, yes, you do then. Ah, I see. Okay. <laughs> uh, so we had a nice little tweet from friend of the show, Richard Whitaker, uh, on episode 112 about, uh, Ducadivia's trip to NS North. And one of the sessions he talked about, which was about the intersection of humanity and technology, um, and I'm just going to read the tweet as is. Listening to episode 112 and wow, you could have a story about not being able to help anyone in an Amazon ghost store really hit home makes me want to redouble my efforts to analyze my shit and make sure I don't exclude people or behaviors. So yeah, uh, ethics and technology, very important, especially these days when the capabilities of what we can do with technology is practically endless. Uh, so we need to be careful about what we're doing. Any thoughts? Uh, no, that pretty it home the same way that this presentation it home to me. Uh, so no, I'm, I'm, I'm trying my best to make sure that also I'm kind of monitoring what I do or what I'm working on, stuff like that. Also, like kind of related to Richard's with the uh, comments is it feels that it's also related to WWDC because this year there was way more like exhibitly stuff it seems in the session themselves than in past years so i think it's also kind of related to that too and not just accessibility but also just like privacy and all of the other stuff that are tied together with ethics and technology um oh yeah totally it's like make sure everybody can be private and also they can be in- feel included by your product more or less yeah good i think that's it on your side right it is and I don't have any follow-up. So let's move to the extravaganza. So this year, as the two last year, so it means that this year, and I'm, if I'm not fucking up my terms, this is the third annual edition of our WWDC recap extravaganza. I came up with the name this year because it's the third year. So I feel that it's uh, appropriate to have a name for it. Summer where, of fun! <laughs> yeah, kind of, kind of. But no, the idea is, uh, I know... At the beginning of this podcast, we were doing more like, oh, what's happening in the news? And three years ago, Yannick and I kind of decided to swift, uh, switch kind of mindset with uh, WWDC. But also Swift. <laughs> yes, yes, that's true. Uh, so uh, so we decided to take two sessions uh, out of the, the big pool and just do a recap of them to make sure uh, that it's kind of, I think the team we were using for those was mainly to make sure that it's like, Yes, there's a lot of nice stuff, and I will go through some of the nice stuff quickly, but those sessions we feel that are a bit on the left field or like something you might forget uh, in the big pool of sessions. So we will be recapping two sessions each, which means four WWE sessions that, in quote-unquote, you should have watched. Just a quick note, last year it was uh, our WDBC uh, recap extravaganza was episode 92, the scooter pandemic, because if you, <laughs> if you may recall, I was in San Jose last year, and in 2017, the first episode that launched this new concept was episode 66, with which was quickest follow-up ever, and to be honest, that title was not a lie. It kind of reminded me of our follow-up of this week. So uh, I know I think we spent five minutes saying it was the quickest follow-up ever. Uh, but that was uh, quite funny. Especially with our recent follow-up section in the past episodes. 
Before we start on our topics, there's something that were made, was made on purpose, uh, part of our extravaganza. It is that some session were excluded from the list. So Yannick and I consult the WDBC list. Uh, we are for, uh, once recording super early. Uh, we are, uh, we usually release the episode on a Sunday and now we're recording on Saturday. So it's like not early, late. No, yeah, we record late, but like early, because usually it's about a month after that we do that. That's what I meant more. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So for the WDC episode, it's quite early in our typical schedule. But Yannick is correct that uh, we are recording late in the week. We're recording on Saturday. So it's all nice outside. So we're stuck inside. But I digress. All of what I wanted to say about that is some of the session from WDC this year uh, were excluded. uh, Topics like Swift UI, Combine, Project Catalyst. Windows on iPad won't be recapped this episode because Yannick and I feel that those topics could become full-blown episodes and I have some ideas already for some of those uh, episodes. So if you were expecting us to talk about this this week, it won't be it, but stay tuned and I'm sure some of those topics will come in the next few weeks or even few months. Yeah, we're going to get a lot of mileage out of this WWDC, I think. <laughs> I th- And I think it is this year's topic uh, kind of team with WDCs. There's a lot of stuff that will stick for the next few years for sure. So yeah, also uh, one last twist this year that was hard is... This year, Apple was pretty upfront with having a lot of video-only sessions, nearly 30 sessions this year. And I think in the past previous years, first of all, I think two, three years ago, that never happened. They started to do that uh, a lot in the past few years, and it was about around 10 from what I remember. Uh, one of my topics is always on those, and I will discuss about that later. But uh, this year was hard. Like, I chose my second uh, session, like, earlier this morning and watched it uh, because I was like scrolling through the WDC app and saw, oh my god, they added this overnight, they added that overnight for the last day. So uh, it was really nice and they were really a problem. I think they said there were uh, nearly 110 sessions during the week plus those 30 video-only sessions that would show up sparingly uh, during the week. And that's literally what happened. Uh, if you live uh, like us in the Eastern time zone, you would wake up the next morning around 9 a.m. and then you would just look at the WBC apps and you'll see like, oh, I didn't see this ske- this video on the, the schedule. And that was one of those. One thing I want to note for potential people who have to go to a day job that doesn't involve iOS, but you're still maybe curious about what's going on in WWDC, uh, you can use the WWDC app to listen to the audio of the sessions and turn the screen off and not look at the slides. And for the most part, Apple presenters are very good uh, at making their presentations stand alone as uh, audio shows as well. So you can just listen to the WWDC sessions as if they were a podcast throughout the week and learn things through osmosis throughout the day. <laughs> I think that's what you did most of the week with the live stream too, right? I didn't watch the live stream at all, except oh, for the okay. keynotes. Yeah. Okay. But okay, good. Okie dokie. If you don't mind, Nick, uh, since it is my week, I'll start with my first session. Sure. And my first session is not a first session. So, uh, of course, you won't be surprised that I've choose, chosen CarPlay as a topic again this no year. Shit. I think, yes, I think that's no surprise. But before I go on session, 252 advances in CarPlay system. I kind of want to do a quick recap uh, of CarPlay in iOS 13 because you know me, I love CarPlay. 
And also, I love to talk about it. I did that during most of our WBC recap extravaganza episodes. And also, uh, I also, uh, did a big episode about CarPlay about a year and a half ago in episode 84 called It's Pronounced Waze. And in this episode, I kind of gave my thoughts about what a reimagined CarPlay would look like and what I feel it should include and concluded that CarPlay at that time needed three things. First, a redesigned home screen tailored to the car experience. Two, second, new types of apps. And third, improvements to its usage. And especially uh, one of the main pain points I had was app mirroring. So last year in uh, WD- with WD- uh, WDC 2019, we got a bit of point number two with third-party navigation apps. But this year, oh my god. While, uh, while announcing iOS 13, Apple showed new improvements to CarPlay and oh boy, oh boy, this got me excited <laughs> because what I've seen this year with iOS 13 is Apple tackled point number one and point number three, which were my main two gripes these days with CarPlay. They also kind of tackled a bit of new types of apps, but more on that later. So first, Apple with iOS, uh, Apple with iOS 13 redesigned CarPlay and CarPlay gets a new home screen which resembles what I've seen most car infotainment system. The new home screen is a dashboard interface that is letting you show, that is showing you multiple data points for apps on your phone and apps for CarPlay. On the same screen, you can follow your route information, any navigation data, whether it's from Waze, like we said in the past episode, or Waze, or any Google Maps, or even Apple Maps. So you can see that and also see what's playing and also have, what I think another part that's new is series suggestion. What they've shown in the marketing images for series suggestion is you see uh, Apple Maps, then you see what's playing. You have, I think, the maybe the... Yeah, I've seen what's your next appointment, more on that later, and also uh, maybe a suggestion for automation, like, oh, we detect that you're maybe near your home, so maybe you want to trigger your own kit, car, garage, door opener. Um, so that's kind of what they're doing right now with the dashboard, and the dashboard becomes the main screen. Of course, uh, we didn't see if the uh, home, the app icon grid got redesigned, but we do see on some of the marketing screenshots that uh, there's still this uh, kind of grid of icons showed in the corner where usually you would see the three most recent apps on the left side of the screen. On top of that, if, if, it, if it weren't enough, because already when they announced that, I was already lost. Like I was like, <laughs> oh my fucking God, I need to bet on my phone today, which I did not do, by the way. But... Uh, the add-on tab, I think, I think in the keynote, what they've done is it was part of the cloud word that they put around like some of the new functionality. And after the release of more, uh, more of the content in the web and in Apple's documentation, we realized that CarPlay no longer requires app mirroring to work. So since now, so from iOS 7 to iOS 12, the way CarPlay worked is it was literally a mirrored stream of your phone, meaning that what you would see on your phone would be adapted, but it will be more or less the same context. For example, you're on the home screen on your phone with the app grid, you would see the same app grid with only the apps that works in CarPlay. You launch 
Apple Maps on CarPlay, your phone will launch Apple Maps on itself too. So that can cause quite some uh, tension in the car if it's not the driver's phone that is connected, which for me happens a lot when uh, Tony is in the car with me. We usually tend to use his phone. So we would program, like he will play the music, play some music. We would program the GPS if need be. And then we would just go drive and then he start to look at most, in most cases, his nine gag, nine gag feed. And then, then I'm like, um, I kind of want to know, like, I don't mind rotting information, but I'm a kind of the dri- I'm I'm the kind of driver that likes to see the map all the time too, because yes, the, the GPS there helped me, but I really like to orient myself just by seeing a map. So that was causing some sometimes uh, tension because I would press on the map and he's like, "Hey, I'm looking at my phone." But now with that, it does mean that CarPlay's interface could have maps, for example, or even the dashboard. And Tony on his phone, that is, is the phone driving CarPlay, would be able to do whatever he wants. He could still go back to maps to change something for me, or he could still go back to music, but he still can go to any other apps that are CarPlay supported, and it wouldn't affect the CarPlay interface itself. That is quite big again. Um, and after that, that's kind of the new functionality that they added for CarPlay. And after that, in the keynote, I was just dead. Literally dead. I'm like, I don't care about the rest. I want CarPlay right now. So um, it will be hard to resist the temptation of maybe public betas or even the betas. Uh, but I think we can discuss uh, that maybe at the end of the episode. When we were watching the keynote, um, I was a couple seconds ahead of you in yes. the stream. And TZ and- is spoiling everything. <laughs> Not everything. Um, yes, but- everything. But when I saw CarPlay stuff, I was like, oh, this is going to be a big deal. And then sure enough, like there was a bunch of caps lock coming my way. And a few seconds later, I was like, yeah, this is what he was waiting for. Yeah, yeah. And I feel to me, it really feels that this year, and especially with the session, so uh, I have one last point before I move on the session, but it feels to me that with CarPlay this year, they're kind of bringing up CarPlay to the next level. And you'll see why once we talk about this session. But last but not least, when I remember the beginning, I said that I had three things I want CarPlay to improve on. The redesigned home screen that is tailored to the car experience, the new type of app, and then the uh, improvements to its usage. I did say that there was new apps. Apple added Calendar to CarPlay this year. That's so weird. It is weird. But while preparing my notes for this, I was thinking about it even more. So there's no presentation about that. Even if you watch the advanced uh, session on CarPlay, they just mentioned there's new functionality for iOS 13. But I wonder if it means that Apple is kind of preparing more opening of CarPlay APIs. I know I've dreamed a lot on that and I might be trying to impose intent on Apple with this because I really, really, really would want that. But I wouldn't be surprised if that's maybe they're trying to dog food some new APIs, maybe using Swift UI to do that. Who knows? So last but not least, like, yes, car, uh, calendar on CarPlay. It's a bit weird, but I see if, uh, if you're a salesperson that is driving a lot, it might be important to see your agenda quickly and do it in a safe manner. And I'm guessing too, that means that CarPlay on Siri, a uh, Siri on CarPlay will also be able to help you with those queries. If you ask what's my next appointment and all of that stuff. So that's the main improvements to CarPlay in iOS 13 and all of that is more or less consumer facing now let's go to session 252 advances in CarPlay systems so in the past few years the CarPlay sessions at 
WWDC are first of all video only and second of all they're really like tailored to the car manufacturer or the car infotainment manufacturers it's not really tailored to, there i think there was maybe one or two in the past few years compared to three or four that was tailored to those manufacturers but the, there was one or two that were manufactured to app developers uh, I think last one last year I talked about the one the new one about uh, third party navigation apps and the one before I've seen it was about like how to integrate an audio app and messaging app and all that stuff. So again, this year advances in CarPlay system is tailored to manufacturers and it highlights all the new features for car entertainment infotainment systems that they can use now with uh, iOS 13 and there are four irregularly shaped displays, second screen support, dynamic screen sizes, and A-Siri functionality. Irregularly shaped displays means that, like iOS apps, CarPlay screens gain safe area. And the idea here is, right now, uh, app manufacturer, the car manufacturers were able to force a place, like a, a view area, uh, in their infotainment system, that is a rectangle, that is where CarPlay would draw itself. Uh, but of course, there's a lot of new advancement in infotainment system in cars. There's different shape of screen in the main, uh, console. There's also now, uh, instrument, digital instrument cluster that shows information there. Some cars don't have the main screen. They only have the instrument, the digital instruments cluster. Some of them have both. So, uh, Apple is taking CarPlay not to the future, but to this modern standard in the cars. And they are letting CarPlay to be, to letting CarPlay shine with those new uh, UIs. So they're adding the new concept, the concept that is not new for iOS developers, but it's called safe areas. And it is, of course, another rectangle that describes to CarPlay where it can safely put its UI element without being impeded by a, maybe like some plastics, uh, some chromes around the uh, screens or just like, because it's not a rectangle screen, like it's more shaped like a digital uh, instrument cluster. So you can define that and, and CarPlay will do its best to align everything. Of course, the view area should uh, include the widest and tallest area. So it, it, let's say your screen is now a circle. It still is requiring you to send it a rectangle or a square. And it will assume that it could draw stuff there, but it might not be fully shown on the screen that you have in front of uh, your user. It's funny because in the video itself, they were using a lot of those instrument class digital instrument clusters and they kind of reminded me of the audi one because in the past few years audi has been quite good at those uh, and even some of their car models don't like i said don't have this like main like typical like tablet a lot of people are journalists are calling like the, they put a tablet on the, the dashboard there and audi was really good at putting this in the digital info, uh, uh, instrument cluster and have just one screen in front of the driver's eyes and mixing everything from navigation to audio and stuff. A company like Audi could make CarPlay show up in their own UI like this new fancy uh, instrument cluster. So that it is it for irregularly shaped displays. So it's really one feature this year that is bringing CarPlay to modern car interfaces. The second one is second screen support. So up to this day, one H.264 video stream could be uh, beamed or streamed by the phone to one screen, which was assumed to be the main 
car, the main card displays. Like I said, now it also supports this irregularly shaped display. But imagine a car, a lot of fancy cars these days, uh, not even fancy cars, like even a lot of normal cars are getting like lots of displays. They will get one display to control the infotainment. They'll have a display in front of you. And with this new functionality, it lets you have multiple video streams that is targeting specific information to different areas of the car dashboard. A lot of the examples they show was two video streams in the instrument cluster because imagine like a typical, if you've sit in a car uh, in the past like, like 10 or 15 years, you'll see that there's like two tachometers, the one that is for the speed, the one for the uh, engine revs. And in the past few years, they started to put displays in the middle. Uh, if you've never seen those uh, digital clusters, they kind of do this, but they put the tachometers really, really on the edge, on the left edge or on the right edge of the display, and they let you let you have a big area in the middle. So they showed an example where you can like just draw carplay in the middle. Let's let's say for example, have the navigation map there, and still have something else on the main dashboard, uh, the main screen in the dashboard. So you would have like maybe I don't know, you might have uh, let's say music running on the main screen, and then have the map information there. Also, you could have the second, because some of those uh, tachometers are now also digital, so you can have one of those tachometers switch to become also its own display UI, which will show maybe uh, what's playing in it uh, directly. So all of these streams can be, first of all, they can be all different, containing all different data. They can also be uh they can also have independent night mode per stream. So it, let's say if in the digital cluster it makes more sense for you you are to be kind of dark because your car's UI is darker there and it's less jarring in the driver's face you can say that this stream is dark mode this stream is light mode and this stream is like something else again uh will be dark or light uh who cares i guess this is kind of what enabled the app mirroring stuff to not be required anymore because if you want to put different things on different screens it kind of makes sense that you have to put that into place Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like now, after after seeing what they announced for consumers, now you look at what I announced for manufacturers, and it's like it's all intertwined together. It's like where I uh, know it is where car interfaces are today and can be in the future, but it's a bit of that catch up. Like because you you see CarPlay was kind of like this this typical. You show the iPad, like you show an iPad on the dashboard, and that's it. And that was more or less that, which was good, and it's still good. But now there's like even more interfaces that you can, uh, or even displays that can integrate with, and CarPlay will make full support of it by removing some of its past constraints. They also remind in that section also reminded you that uh, if you also support Apple's IAP2, so it's the iPod Accessory Protocol 2, there is stuff that you don't need to show a stream, but you can show in your own UI that is driven by CarPlay, for example. Uh, route guidance, now playing information, communication, call controls, all of these, because they're using this Apple protocol, uh, you can just use your own car UI and have the data coming from CarPlay and the phone itself. Last but not least in uh, the screen and then adaptation with car stuff is dynamic screen sizes. Before, once you define the view area in CarPlay, this was fixed forever. You really need to say like, oh, there's a maybe. It's really dependent on what the uh, what the car infotainment system was saying, but you could not adapt it at runtime more or less. 
If you ever seen a Tesla, for example, or I think recently, I think it's the new uh, Ram pickup prop where they have kind of a Tesla-like display. It's like the big portrait tablet in the uh, in the con- the main console. Uh, you can see that as, at least right now for RAM, they were kind of doing half screen for CarPlay, half screen for their main thing. And now with dynamic screen sizes, CarPlay and the Car UI can negotiate that, meaning that the CarPlay UI can be resized at runtime by user input, whether it is with UI inside of the CarPlay UI or even UI in the car's own UI. So it means that you can go fully full screen in a portrait screen, for example, or just say half and half or whatever the car uh, infotainment system defines. And also, if it is configurable, like the main example we're saying, again, instrument cluster, like they push so hard on instrument instrument cluster (laughs) because I wouldn't be surprised that a lot of car manufacturers are saying, guys, we're there already. Where are you? And we won't support you or we'll like maybe have less support for CarPlay because of that. Um, but what they were showing as an example is like, again, let's take those two tachometer, uh, gauges example I was talking about and you can move them more to the, uh, edges of the screen and make them more center. The car's UI can change its animation metadata. So CarPlay can animate its own UI and its own stream at the same time that the UI, uh, the car's UI is changing. So all these three functionality is really to improve the integration of CarPlay in cars. And I wouldn't be surprised that because of that, we would see a better integration and B, even more integration. Apple was really proud to say in the past uh, six months to a year that there are, I think, like in, what was the number they said recently? It's like 80, 90% of like cars. I think it's 90% of like 2019 model cars. Yeah, yeah. I know that the, 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 the data was a bit kind of 90% of cars. What do you mean by 90% of cars? But no, I think it makes sense. But new cars, like most new cars you can buy today, will support these. I haven't looked too much at what uh, Google announced with Android Auto this year. Um, but I hope that it kind of fits the plan because sometimes uh, car manufacturers they kind of want to have like the lowest denominator for all integration. So that as that uh, thinking of how to integrate those car UIs from Google and I, I, Apple could uh, block some of those new functionality. Well, it helps that like Android Auto for the most part is kind of, well, I guess CarPlay is kind of like this too, but you're primarily meant to interact with it via the Google Assistant. And therefore it's more of an integration with the Google Assistant than it is making your app available on Android Auto, period. Yeah, I think Apple has more like you can make your app more integrated than maybe what I've seen from Android Auto because you're you're correct that everything goes to the assistant. Uh, yes, some audio apps can like provide data, but it feels to me that uh, Apple's uh, surprisingly enough, Apple's platform for that is a bit more open. I'm not sure I completely agree with that statement, but it it's more debatable than it seems like it would. Okay, uh, fair point. Uh, last but not least, it's funny that you mentioned, uh, Google Assistant because now car manufacturer can support a Siri. And I'm sorry for all your smart speaker and all of that stuff. So please maybe mute them first. Uh, but this is the functionality that you can just say those fancy, just fancy words I just said and your phone just picks it up and then start listening to you right away. So before that, you really need to have a button press. So Siri was already available in the car and even before CarPlay popularity 
there was integration to just like to use the like the speak to my car button and transform it into a, a, a Siri button. Excuse me. Uh, I had that in my uh, previous Ford car because it had the old sync system, but at least it was able to trigger Siri through the car's buttons. And now uh, with that, uh, they're improving this Siri buttons and cars to make it like a Siri. Of course, uh, since it activates in this in- instantaneously, oh my goodness, uh, you might need to have new hardware in your car. So that's kind of the sad part of this new aspect is the car needs a an always on microphone. I think that's kind of already, it could be already there. B, a module that does continuous echo cancellation and noise reduction. Okay, <laughs> yeah. maybe, maybe. <laughs> then you need to have a voice activity detector, which, you know what? A lot of the new cars, you can talk to them. So maybe not what you have in your current car, the microphone and the chips in it might not be that. But I've seen like Mercedes-Benz with the M-Box, M-B-U-X system. They kind of have this uh, instantaneous Siri activation functionality, but were their own assistant. So I feel that a lot of those new cars and maybe more the luxury car first will have this voice activity detector and then the keyword detector. It's really funny because the way they describe it, they basically describe like an Amazon Echo Dot. <laughs> it's really weird that it's like cars just need to put the hardware of an Echo Dot in there and suddenly you get free Hey Siri. But the other <laughs> yeah, thing yeah. is, um, oh, I just invoked my phone. That's great. Uh, <laughs> oh. I forgot that was a feature. But, oh, now I completely lost my train of thought. Thanks, Siri. Uh, <laughs> you were talking about the Echo Dot then. Yeah, the, the other thing is it's kind of strange that it doesn't just rely on the phone hardware for that. Like, uh, It's because you didn't let me finish. Oh, okay. Then go ahead. So you're correct that there's a first pass done with the car hardware, but there's a second pass. Um, I don't... Really, I won't go into big details about the architecture because they did show the architecture and all this audio signal goes where and how. Uh, but yes, they said that there's a second pass to make sure that it's really said the right thing. And then it can trigger. So the idea is like all of this audio is stored on the car. And then if those two detectors are triggered, then they go through the phone's trigger uh, detector. And then if the phone detector is triggered too, then it activates. So they're kind of saying, of course, it's private because the car is not supposed to store data and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> oh, yeah. You trust not the car companies yes, a lot? <laughs> yes. Not supposed to, quote unquote. That's like when um, Apple said, oh, we're going to let people put the the Apple TV app on various other hardware, but you're not allowed to track users. Like, we trust you. You're go- not going to trust uh, to track users, right? And yeah, then yeah, yeah. nobody believes that they're actually going to do that. The last functionality, the last hour you need to have is an audio mixer because from now, uh, because, because now with this new functionality, Siri won't stop audio playback. So you need to have an audio mixer that is able to mix Siri's audio prompts, the media playback, and also navigation prompts that could happen while you're talking with Siri, which is a kind of a new functionality there because usually you press the button and it stops. Also, Siri is because it will act like on your phone when you trigger Siri with the button on your phone, it instantly listens to, right? So you like, let's say you say blah 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 Siri, and then you continue your request like go do this for me, or like what's my next appointment? If you press the button on your car now with a with a car that supports a Siri, the the car will automatically like Siri will automatically listen. So you can do like press the button and say like what's my next appointment. And Siri can already process that and have an answer 
more or less before uh, you're done or like just half a second, a millisecond after you are done. So like I said, when Yanis was talking about the Echo Dots, uh, after that, they more or less show the architecture, how your iPhone works with your car system and all of that stuff. If you want to see that, I would invite you to go uh, watch that part of the session. It's mostly the last section. Uh, but last but not least, all of those four functionalities, it feels to me that Apple is kind of catching up with new and interesting UI that I've seen car makers to do. And it's surprising to say, I think they, like if we recall and we were looking at what they were doing in the early 2000s, we like everybody was making fun of them because they were like like 90s displays in the car and they're like pixelated, like green text on black screen. And I've seen weird stuff in car from like $10,000 cars to $100,000 cars. Like there was a lot of weird shit. That's almost still what Subaru is shipping today because their infotainment system is really bad. Yes, yeah, Subaru is not uh, known for their good infotainment system, sadly. But like we said last year, because they were announcing that Subaru was now in CarPlay, uh, using CarPlay, so that's good for you if you want to buy a Subaru car. Uh, I'll get on it. Yeah, yeah. But it feels to me that now, like the manufacturer, like I've seen, I've read a lot about like Ford, BMW, Mercedes Benz, a lot of them, they are kind of more or less becoming tech companies because of that. They have big tech sections, uh, big departments just to handle that. And they were finding, they were bringing new uh, interaction and new like user experiences that were more fitting of the car. And it is really nice that now Apple is catching up and making sure that CarPlay can be in it too. Because let me tell you, I'll be be celebrating my two years with my new car uh, at the end of the month. And it is really, really rare when I use uh, Ford's system. like it, first thing I go, I do when I enter the car, I plug my phone and it's CarPlay. And it's CarPlay all the time. So of course Apple wants that for the user. Maybe the car and the car makers are not happy about that, but at least uh, if they want to keep users, they are kind of forced to do so. Don't you feel like the effort of the uh, the car manufacturers on their new technology stacks and everything is kind of wasted because CarPlay is so good? Yes and no. Remember, uh, I'm sure you don't remember, but in my episode uh, about me reimagining CarPlay, there's stuff that I feel car manufacturers can do because of deeper integration. CarPlay cannot really talk to the car itself for security purposes, privacy Mm. purposes, but I do feel that there's some functionality that they should be able to do. A simple one I remember, it's uh, in my, uh, it's in the uh, SU, Volkswagen SUV that one of my colleagues Bertrand has right now and it's like first of all it tells you like it the infotainment system detects oh you're running low on gas do you want me to route you to the nearest like gas station yeah yeah yeah. like smart stuff like we want siri to be smarter but i feel that siri should be able to tell me oh you're running low on gas here's all the latest uh, location trigger a shortcut when i'm low on gas (laughs) maybe not that but (sighs) my goodness but But, i'm actually kind of being serious like that could actually be useful in certain cases could be could be, yes. I send you a reminder and stuff like that. Uh, I know that they have integration for car manufacturers. I never really seen that. They build integration for you to have custom apps. Yeah. yeah. That are like kind of shown by the car infotainment system through CarPlay, but they're not really iOS apps. And they could have an iOS component on your phone too. Uh, but I never really seen those. And that's in there what you're saying. Oh, but if you do that, um, 
we can do the you can or the system can do stuff for the app and it makes sense so maybe that's because nobody is building those apps and i think it doesn't not that it makes sense but i think i can understand why you kind of want to do the integration but would you really want to build an app that is only on CarPlay? Actually, I think those apps actually exist. It's just you're not buying in the right price bracket for. Oh, those that apps. I wouldn't be surprised too. That I wouldn't be surprised. But even then, I've never really. Uh, I would really. So if you have a car that has this, like, please send me notes about it. I really am curious and eager to see that in person, because most people I know that have cars that support CarPlay, they don't have a specific app. But at the same time, I could see that uh, some of the apps, when they're giving an example, they were talking about electric cars, like, mm. oh, to know when it is fully charged and stuff like that. So maybe it's like some, I uh, know we know all, we know Tesla doesn't support CarPlay. I think the Leaf has one though. That's why, uh, yeah, maybe I should have, I have a colleague in Ottawa that has a Leaf. So maybe I should send him a note about that. Hmm. But yeah, so by the way, if you have a car that has a specific CarPlay optimized app for it, for the car itself, Please send me a screenshot and some notes about how you like or dislike it. So that's mainly it for CarPlay. I'm super eager to it. That might kind of force me to install the beta because I really, really want to play with it. Thrill seekers only. Yeah, not the beta. I think I'll wait. Last year, I nearly went on the public beta route. I like. I was this close. I think in August, I was like, let's jump to it. And then I was like, ah, it's August. Come on. But this year, because of CarPlay, I think I'm eagerly awaiting July so I can install it. Cool. So what's your first session? Okay, so my first session is introducing desktop class browsing on iPad. Unlike Ducadivia, I was never able to find where the session numbers were, so I don't have it. Oh, you, you really need to go on the website. So if you post, once you post a link, you'll see the number. Yeah, on. I did not do that. Uh, so let's start off by uh, defining what Apple means by desktop class. And really what they mean is getting more done in the iPad Safari. Uh, iPad Safari has a new download manager where you can download and upload files even in the background while working on other tabs and other apps, which is cool because pre- previously, if you were trying to upload something, you couldn't really do that. It caused more issues than anything else. By the way, it's session 203, so 203. I just looked. Nice. They're also adding full-page zoom, uh, hiding the Safari toolbar and per-site preferences for stuff like desktop mode. Uh, they've added all of the keyboard shortcuts that you expect from desktop Safari in the iPad version of Safari, which I know Federico Vitici is very excited about. And at the heart of it all is they are greatly improving the experience for browsing websites that were designed for the desktop on the iPad. When the iPhone was launched, all websites were designed for desktops, and a lot of design decisions around mobile Safari was designed to make desktop uh, websites usable on a tiny phone. Um, but then something happened, which is HTML5 came along and a bunch of new web APIs uh, were developed, and that allowed people to take advantage of mobile devices' unique capabilities. And I mean, like, responsive design techniques work great on iPad today, but it's still fairly common, unfortunately, for websites to have two separate versions of the sites, one that was tailor-made for mobile devices and another one for desktop devices. Um, so now there's this concept of uh, content modes in mobile Safari, which allows iPad Safari to present itself as a Mac via its user agent string, which is kind of interesting. So some design, uh, some desktop websites are designed with high information density, but the iPad's default viewport made those websites appear very zoomed in. 
I didn't realize this because I mostly go to responsive websites, but this viewport was actually shared amongst all sizes of iPad, whether you were using an iPad mini, an iPad, or an iPad Pro, uh, which could make some sites look really goofy if you have the 12.9 like I do. Uh, and viewports will now match the iPad screen sizes, so websites can make better use of the screen real estate uh, if they're designed for desktop. Another thing that's fairly common is some desktop websites are designed for mouse input. And in iOS 13, there, uh, or iPad OS 13, <laughs> uh, there's better emulation of mouse input via touches. So websites that are overly reliant on hover states can now work out of the box with mobile Safari. And if you want to design for touch specifically, they are now supporting pointer events API, which we'll talk about in a second. So there are, there are two main parts to the session. There's a part for app developers, which tells them how to make use of full desktop browsing in their apps. And for web developers, how to make websites that work even better on the iPad. And I find this session kind of interesting because, uh, like, at a glance, this is kind of a session about end-user features more than anything else. It doesn't sound like there are necessarily implications on developers. But as someone who is uh, developing, like, inventory management systems that use barcode scanners in the web for iPads, like, I am very interested in finding out if my entire thing will break this summer. Uh, so I was very interested in watching this session. And it turns out that there are more implications for developers than I had originally thought, which is interesting. And the other thing that is kind of strange is WWDC is kind of like the mecca of mobile uh, of native development. It's kind of strange to go to WWDC to go and watch a session about making websites. But increasingly, uh, as a web developer, I'm realizing the influence that uh, Apple's decisions, whether they are good or bad, has on mobile web app development. And you sort of have to keep up with it. Otherwise, you're going to find out on Stack Overflow in nine months uh, when your app completely breaks. There was a lot of uh, some of those uh, video only sessions that were about what's new in web. I think there's one I saw this morning while looking at the list is like, what's new for web developers? Yeah, they do that every year. And there's also the Safari Dev Center, which people forget about on developer.apple.com, which is literally just like, here are all the weird features that Safari supports that you maybe don't know how to use. And it's documentation for all of those, but nobody ever checks it. Most people just end up finding out via Stack Overflow, like I said. Uh, so let's start off with the section for app developers on how to make use of full desktop browsing in their apps. There are four common ways that apps use web browsing. There's following links, uh, an embedded web browser, hybrid apps, and authentication. So fo for following links, they are pushing very heavily that you should be using Safari View Controller. Safari View Controller, if you didn't know from previous years, is this uh, modal view you can pop up in your application, which displays a safari view and it gives you access to safari's best features like reader and autofill and occasionally also brings along your cookies from the uh, from the main app version of safari sometimes yeah that, that's why yeah it like uh, tweetbot is weird for that because uh sometimes like you're logged into twitter in the browser but you open a tweet in the safari view controller in tweetbot and it just like doesn't recognize your cookie for some reason there are weird things going on and i think it's kind of tied to authentication which we'll talk about a little bit later well, um, they backpedaled that a lot uh, last year for privacy reasons too yeah definitely uh so but yeah uh, that's not the point so safari view controller gets desktop class browsing for free which is not surprising because that's kind of the point of safari view controller uh 
So it will behave exactly like Safari, which is it's going to select the most appropriate browsing mode for the size class of the device, which means if you're using narrow multitasking views or an iPad mini, uh, you're going to be fed the mobile version of websites. And if you're using a larger device, uh, like a big iPad or an iPad Pro, you're going to get uh, desktop views by default. Next up, if you have an embedded web browser, uh, here again, this is kind of like, please modernize your fucking applications. Build, <laughs> build your app with WK WebView and compile using the iOS 13 SDK. Like, no big surprise there. Uh, they've added a new property on WK WebView configuration called application name for user agent. Uh, and they are suggesting that you use this instead of custom user agent directly on the configuration object. Uh, the reason for this is if you specify an application name, uh, it can do all of the fancy stuff it needs to do to simulate being a Mac or being an iPad in the right context. Whereas if you use custom user agent, you are completely overriding the entire user agent and therefore the dynamic properties of that user agent will no longer happen. WK webpage preferences has a preferred content mode property, which you can set on that uh, to recommended for auto detection like Safari. Or if you want a full override, you can have uh, mobile or desktop as those options. And if you do want to allow user switching of that uh, content mode or have per site controls, there's a WK navigation delegate on which you can register a method that returns a custom instance of WK web page preferences per site. So that's how you can do that if you need to do that. Next up is hybrid apps. So this means stuff like uh, uh, PhoneGap and all of those weird technologies that implement web views as part of an application's UI or the main UI of your application. Here again, not very complicated. Use WK WebView and build with the iOS 13 SDK. Test your app and if needed, force the mobile mode in WK WebPage preferences to sort of revert to what the behaviors, the default behaviors were prior to iOS 13. No big deal. So authentication is where it gets interesting. There's a new authentication services framework. And they've created like a derivative of Safari view controller specifically for authentication purposes. It's called AS Web Authentication Session. And it presents in a form sheet and has more limited controls over uh, what the user can do within that view. And it just handles OAuth authentication for you. It's They didn't really expand on it too much, which is kind of weird, but it sounds like a really nice solution if you're dealing with OAuth stuff. The main problem is you still have to support older versions of the operating system, so you probably can't adopt it just yet, but uh, it's nice to know that they've sort of had a workaround for that. Okay, next up, for web developers designing websites for iPad. So if you have a responsive website, very little should change, but there are some new tools to maintain and improve responsive websites. So there are six new features that they really talk about in this thing. Some are developer features and some are end user features with developer implications. So the first is pointer events, which I mentioned earlier. Pointer events is uh, an API that became an HTML5 standard. I think it was originally proposed by Microsoft as part of the whole Windows 8 trying to do every form factor in one OS disaster thing. Uh, but it was actually a very good idea. The, the entire premise of the API is that reconciling mouse and touch input is very messy, uh, in web development. Uh, and pointer events kind of abstracts all of that. So on iPad by default, uh, Safari tries to keep mouse functionality intact for websites that are primarily reliant on mouse events. When a user taps, the browser will do the same thing that happens when you usually, uh, 
use a mouse, which is mouse down, mouse up, and click events are dispatched. Hover was also happening at the same time as this previously. Uh, however, mouse move kind of doesn't exist on the iPad. Uh, Apple tried to emulate mouse move events at the same time as touch move for compatibility, um, but it interfered too much with scrolling elements to actually be viable as a default. So if you want something like mouse move to, let's say, have a drawing view on your web page, you really should be using Pointer Events API. Uh, and like I said, it's an abstraction that sort of gets in between of listening to input and what the specific input method is. Uh, and it supports mouse, touch, and pen events, which means Apple Pencil support. Uh, instead of using mouse or touch specific event names, like mouse down or touch move or all that stuff, you can just replace the name of the input method with pointer. And congratulations, you are now using pointer events. Uh, be sure to use feature detection because not all browsers currently support this. But soon maybe uh pointer event is literally a subclass of mouse event so unless you want to use new pointer event specific features there is nothing else to do in your application and suddenly touches should become more responsive than they were uh, because the mouse emulation adds a little delay to stuff be sure to only use one or the other so use either pointer event or mouse event on a given action do not register both because both will be called and everything will happen twice uh, Oops. Yeah. Uh, pointer events have a pointer type property on the event to determine if it is a mouse touch or pen pointer. So you can use that to determine various uh, behavior differences you want. Now, it's possible that the browser has some inherent default behavior uh, for a certain mouse or touch events. For example, text selection. Uh, you might want to drag over text on a screen, but not necessarily have text selection happen. So on the Mac, you can do as you've usually done for uh, JavaScript events on desktop browsers and use prevent default in the body of the event listener to prevent interference from browser native behavior. On iOS, they're using a new touch action CSS property. You can set that to none uh, when responding to uh, on the div responding to pointer events. This is easier to use than writing JavaScript to handle the default prevention and allows for more granular options. For example, you can do things like disable scrolling, but keep zoom intact for accessibility purposes. Uh, it's also declarative, which means that by doing it upfront, it is less performance intensive than the JavaScript equivalent. Okay, now the next one, which I think is the part that everybody was the most curious about, which is hover events. So WebKit also sends hover events for compatibility, but they are a little tricky. Uh, hover detection was changed in iOS 13 because uh, previously, like I said, touch and hover would happen at the same time. And now it's not. So hover is sent when you tap something. And if that event causes a meaningful change on the page, it will stop at the hover event instead of continuing to send mouse down, mouse up, mouse click like it did in previous OSs. A good example of this is, uh, let's say you have a nav bar where you have categories displaying at the top of the screen. And those categories are both hover targets where if you hover over them, a detail uh, category listing shows up under them. But there are also links directly to pages for those categories. Well, on previous OSs, you would press that. It would hover. You would have the thing pop up under it. And then the click would go off and you would still actually click the link. So then... You wouldn't actually be able to use the navigation that popped up under it. It would just go to the next page. Now, if the change is significant enough for Safari to detect it as a meaningful change to the page, 
uh, the hover event will stop there, and then you'll have to do a second tap to actually trigger the mouse down, mouse up, mouse click events. They are stressing very heavily that this is entirely heuristic-based and tries to determine design intent, so it is imperfect, um, but it should work very well in most situations. Uh, but to make sure that it actually works very well, they gave some best practices. So always provide another way to access hover content. This is good for accessibility, and it's also a nice fallback for when Safari does the wrong thing. <laughs> uh, avoid using hover for common interactions, as it forces that action to take two taps and slows down the user. And uh, never, or, or actually that's not true, don't re register timers in your hover event, because Safari will wait for that timer to end in order to determine if there was a meaningful change in page contents before resuming the event handling. Which means... Uh, actually, this is kind of a patch that was made to support jQuery animations, because if you're still using JavaScript-based animations uh, and not CSS3 animations, all of that is entirely reliant on timers, and therefore it's possible that there is actually going to be a meaningful change at the end of the animation. It's just you have to wait for it to complete, and uh, Safari has no way of telling if something is an animation or if something is just a dumb timer you made that is going to do something in seven minutes. So it's going to wait the seven minutes before actually resuming the event handling. And you probably don't want that. Uh, next up is hardware accelerated scrolling. So uh, fans of iOS probably know by now that WebKit has always had hardware accelerated scrolling for the main window contents in Safari. It's part of what we love about iOS. Scrolling is smooth almost all the time. Almost all the time. In iOS 13, uh, subframes and overflow scroll regions gain hardware acceleration for buttery smooth scrolling. This means that basically anywhere you can scroll on a web page, unless it is done entirely in JavaScript, which is fucking stupid, should be super smooth. That also means that old techniques for fast scrolling are now unnecessary. So previously, this was done with a CSS property called WebKit Overflow Scrolling Touch. Um, this could never actually be enabled by default because the implementation details of this fast scrolling method had implications on the Z stacking of your CSS elements and it could break your user interface, which is why it could never actually be made the default. Uh, this CSS property is a no-op in iOS 13, so you no longer need to use it. Uh, you probably want to keep it around for old OS versions though, I guess. Uh, if you're using a JavaScript library like Touch Events to emulate fast scrolling, uh, you no longer need to use that because, again, it is the default behavior on iOS 13. Next feature is viewport and text sizing. Uh, they really want websites that are not designed to the iPad to be displayed to fit on the iPad. Uh, and they really want a strong stance of no horizontal scrolling unless your website was designed to have horizontal scrolling in place. And all text should be legible for most users without additional zooming. What kind of sucks is that some desktop websites are designed for a fixed width that is wider than an iPad. And uh, there was a way to remedy this. It was called the viewport declaration. So you have this meta tag in the head of your website that says, I am a web application with a viewport that expects a width of X. And then the iPad will read that and say, okay, I'm going to display this website as if an iPad is the screen of X and then smush that into the screen by zooming out. Um, unfortunately, web developers are not very good at reading documentation, and there are lots of incorrect viewport declarations all over the internet. And this means that non-responsive websites are declaring a viewport that is inappropriate uh, for their website. They are using what should be used for responsive sites on non-responsive websites, and then the user winds up using a website whose content is partly inaccessible off-screen. 
that's no good. So WebKit is doing something debatably okay, which is they are ignoring the viewport declaration altogether if it finds out that your site's content is wider than the viewport of the page. If your website is designed to have horizontal scrolling, add shrink to fit equals no to your viewport declaration, and the old behavior will be restored to Safari, and you will still have your horizontal scrolling. If you want full control over the viewport and sizing of your of your text, uh, Apple strongly recommends that you use responsive design, which I also agree with. Uh, next up is Visual Viewport API. Now you might be saying, what's Visual Viewport? We were just talking about the viewport. Isn't that the same thing? Well, there's a distinction to be made between the Visual Viewport and the Layout Viewport. So the Viewport meta tag configures what is the Layout Viewport, which is uh, Safari needs to lay out uh, your views and all of that stuff within a certain viewport, and that is where it's going to be doing it. And it changes on responsive websites whenever a window is resized on the Mac or whenever you rotate the device or enter split view or slide over on iOS. The visual viewport is the portion of the screen, uh, the portion of the layout viewport that is currently visible and unobscured when, let's say, a keyboard is presented on top of your website. Uh, so this is basically an API that allows you to move controls to a more appropriate and accessible location when a keyboard is up or whenever anything is covering a part of the screen. Uh, it's not clear to me if a slide overview means that like the right third of your iPad screen is no longer in the visual viewport. Would kind of like more precision about that, but it's really cool. And to actually, uh, respond to these changes in the visual viewport you can register the resize event on the window.visualviewport object and boom you have uh, the ability to move your controls around appropriately for that last feature that they wanted to discuss for this was streaming video which is kind of an odd one uh, but it did give us the fabulous triple craig meme which i posted on twitter <laughs> uh, so for streaming video the apple recommendation is use http live streaming uh, hls is available basically everywhere for uh, Apple devices. And it's a very easy solution to a hard problem. It plays nice with CDNs. It gives you free behavior like AirPlay support. However, some websites, cough, cough, desktop, YouTube, <laughs> use <laughs> media source extensions uh, or MSE, which give you more explicit controls over the data that's being transferred. Uh, this enables things like dynamically selecting the resolution of video in response to bandwidth changes, among other things. And the big news is that iOS 13 now has MSE enabled for desktop sites on an iPad. So all of the existing MSE engines in the wild should just work. So that's nice. That's a, yeah, yes. it's a big improvement. So we're going to finish off the session with best practices. Uh, these are very entertaining. So let's go through them. <laughs> okay. Build one responsive websites instead of parallel mobile and desktop sites. Like this has basically been the entire message of this session is stop doing this. Uh, and I agree. Uh, next up, use feature detection instead of user agent sniffing. Uh, they said iPad is a chameleon that can go in and out of iPad and desktop user agents. And technically with UIKit apps running on the Mac, you can't really be sure that iOS like user agents are really running iOS anymore. So don't do it. Uh, it's probably going to make some people's life hell because sometimes you want to do dumb things like workarounds because sometimes Safari has bugs. Uh, and now you're not going to be able to use those workarounds, which is kind of shitty, but I guess you're just going to have to deal with it. Yeah, I wonder if Apple now is kind of trying to force those web developers saying, 
you know what? Log us a bug and we'll fix it. Stop working around because if we work around, we don't know. File then, radar. <laughs> no, it's a file of feedback and it's a feedback manager. I forgot the new name of it. Yeah, I forgot the, the name of the thing. But yeah. Uh, next one. This is going to be super obvious to anyone who has been around since 2007. Don't use Flash. <laughs> oh, no, they said that again. Here's a literal quote from the session. When we say iPad has desktop class browsing, we mean modern desktop, desktop class browsing. So that means no plugins. And apparently Flash is not going to work in Safari at all in 2020 because maybe there's going to be an ARM transition. So, uh, yeah. No, I heard about that. I think they talked about it last year that they're rooming the legacy plugin APIs and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I remember seeing news about that last year. But, like, the the timing would be very interesting if that were to happen. I'll just say that. Uh, next up, let users decide if they want audio. WebKit prevents autoplay audio by default, so do not assume your audio will autoplay in your application. Remember that some desktop browsers don't have mice, sometimes for accessibility reasons, sometimes because it's actually an iPad. Uh, so hover should just be for decorative purposes and not for functional purposes. And last but not least, use built-in APIs instead of doing hacky shit with JavaScript events. So, for example, <laughs> if you want to customize the behavior of text selection, don't reverse engineer how text selection works with JavaScript events because you're going to hate yourself. Use selection changed events. This is where I break my notes and add a personal note, which is I tried to implement a feature with selection changed events in Safari last year, and it never fucking worked because their implementation was buggy as hell. So... Maybe don't listen to them sometimes. But yes, in theory, you should be using those, those kinds of events. But sometimes Safari does a shitty job of implementing them. That's just all I'm going to say. And that's it for this session, which has been super interesting and mostly means that my applications should continue to run intact on iPad this uh, fall, which is good because I didn't really want to have to go rewrite all of them. So yay. It's good here. This session is on my fave list. I really need to watch it. I know uh, during the week I send it to a lot of web developers to our frontenders. They're like, hey, there's that this week. Uh, with, uh, now that all the videos are out, I think I'll just like do a quick summary. Uh, like here's the list. Maybe you should think, I think you should watch, uh, to those. But yeah, this one seems really, really interesting and, uh, it's really nice. Uh, I'll watch it for sure. But your summary is like, there was a lot of content in that one because like your summary was quite jam packed. Yeah. And it was like a 40 minute session. So yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Really good one seems. Yep. Okay. Now we move from Safari to fonts with session 227. So 227 font management and text scaling. There's a lot of new stuff with fonts in iOS. Uh, and those are on uh, iOS and Mac, excuse me. There's, those are behind four new pillars. So new system fonts, installing and accessing user fonts, which is a new uh, feature on iOS, font selection, which is also a new feature on iOS, and text scaling. So quickly with new system fonts, uh, they, we've seen new SF variants uh, in the past few months, I would say, and even some right now in iOS 13, but they add a new, uh, they call it design. So new three designs for uh, SF, San Francisco. The first one is called Rounded, and you I might have seen it in the new Read Miners app. All of the titles with the bright colors, you'll see it uses uh, San Francisco Rounded. The Books app have, uh, has access to uh, San Francisco Serif. Uh, and last but not least, uh, there's San Francisco Mono, 
uh, as seen as in Swift playgrounds for a lot of the code. So those three fonts are you are accessible via the UI font descriptor APIs. Uh, Apple uh, during that presentation, the presenter went a long, not a long one, but a, like I think it's a slide or two of rent about like do not instantiate system fonts using their name. Uh, because everything that starts with a dot as a font name is considered private. You're not and, my dad. You can't tell me what to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, they were like, you know what? If you do that, uh, you might just end up causing crashes because those fonts might just disappear. So that's why they added this on UI font descriptor. So the idea is you say you say UI font dot system font as you do before with like the boldness that you want, the font size, all the configuration you want whether it's weight of font size and all this stuff. Then you ask font descriptor to say, give me the font with this design. So you say, let's say I say, I want the system font and give me the font descriptor for design rounded. And if it can do it, it will give you a new font descriptor that you can now instantiate and have a UI font instance based on that. So it seems that like the way they build it is really like say, oh, if we change them, uh, if we change it, uh, we, it allows you to have a, always a default system font. And then if it's not available, then at least you can uh, piggyback on the original one, stuff like that. So that's quite interesting and important to note in the long run about uh, instantiating system fonts by name. This will no longer work in iOS 13. So DBI will return you a nil font. So might end up with crashing app. Uh, next point was installing and accessing font user. A big feature of, of iOS is now you can build an app that is called a font provider app. And those, uh, this type of apps can do, uh, multiple things. So first of all, it can register font system wide. It is assumed that it should provide a UI to browse the font library you included in that uh, app because don't forget on iOS, you don't have access to phone book that app like on Mac OS. I thought I heard that there's a thing in the settings app to view yeah, fonts. Okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you'll see why it, they, they say it's really not font book, but it is font book. <laughs> also, the, this app should really uh, respond to the font change notification because, like Annie just said, there's a way to manage fonts in setting after installation only, though. So you really need to have your app that is a font provider to say, I want to register those fonts. Then yes, you can go to settings, general and fonts under iOS 13 and you'll see the installed themes, uh, the installed fonts, excuse me. Then also you can remove fonts from there, but you cannot add them from there. It's only through the specific app. Also, once you uninstall an app, the OS will remove those fonts. So it is important to listen to the notification again in the app that will uh, consume those fonts to make sure that if a font is removed, you always have a backup font. This functionality is available via entitlement. Uh, this new font entitlement has two new capabilities. The first one is to install font and the second one is to use the installed font. So by default, uh, fonts are not accept that those system, no, excuse me, those user fonts are not accessible to the user. You will need to have this special entitlement to be able to access it, they consider that the list of installed fonts is a privacy uh, issue if you can oh have access God. to it. So, and I think I, we heard about that semi recently that uh, people were using that to uh, track you on the web via yeah. the. So, mm, yeah. So I can understand why they are uh, cautious with that. And that's also why they uh, 
put that functionality behind an entitlement. So the font inside your font provider app should be included in two ways. There's two ways that Apple will approve uh, your app to be to include fonts. And the first one, of course, is it being bundled in the app or using an asset catalog via on-demand resources. And it, Apple re- re- strongly recommends that if you have a big library of fonts you want to include in the app, that you should use on-demand resources. Of course, iOS supports all the modern format font formats, the TTF, OTF, and TTC, and all their modern variants too. But they did mention that it does not support PoreScript and Suitcase fonts. I don't know what this oh, one. Oh but... wow, Suitcase is old as fuck. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I, it's funny because while I was taking a look, I paused, like listen again. It's like, did he say Suitcase? But yes, he did. So uh, the presenter really mentioned that. PostScript fonts and suitcase fonts are not supported. They really strongly believe, they really strongly believe that you should use modern form font formats. Also, an app can request, uh, installing those fonts, but the OS is making sure they're installed because the OS is taking care of, uh, getting user acceptation and user consent to install the fonts and making sure that uh, the app doesn't fake or so there's no way for an app to register user fonts without having a user consent and of course this consent is done by the OS. So Apple added a lot of new APIs to CT Font Manager. CT Font Manager request uh, register font your fonts URL and there's an equivalent API for if you use asset catalogs and on demand resources and of course you can also say uh, CT Font Manager request fonts to uh, request them. There's a quick note, couple of quick notes about uh, uh, user fonts itself. Uh, there's a number, uh, there's a limit on the number of registered font that is available in iOS. But the presenter was a bit wishy-washy with the, what's the maximum number. It's kind of like, oh, it depends on the font size. Or it depends on how many fonts you have in the same category, blah, blah, blah. It was typical. Like, uh, we don't want to say what's the maximum, uh, but there's a maximum. It sounds like there is like a partition or whatever that is like one gig big and you can put as many fonts into that thing as you can. But like, because all of the font sizes are variable, it's like, we're not going to tell you have a one gig limit, but you sort of have a one gig limit. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because in that portion and in the, throughout this, uh, this presentation, they mention a lot of the like, Cortex, right? All, a lot of those APRs are available to Cortex. And it's, I don't think I've ever used Cortex, but I kind of forgot it was a C based API. And now because all the examples are in Swift, uh, you kind of see that, uh, Maybe using C-based APIs through Swift. Uh, I don't know if it's a ca- if it is caused by Cortex not being properly audited, or it's really because it is really a pain in the butt sometimes to use a C-based API with Swift. But uh, some of the code that they presented was a bit weird. Uh, one of example of that is the name of the notification, which to me sounds like it was not audited. It is K C T Font Manager registered font change notification and that is being forced to be force cast into a ns notification dot name so i feel that is a mix <laughs> of both it's like okay i think score text needs a bit of love to work correctly with like works greatly with swift so it needs to be audited a bit like uh, a lot of apple other apis uh, but it seems that even then uh it's still uh somewhat hard next point uh 
now that you've installed custom fonts, uh, you might want to have access to it, right? You might, uh, you might be in pages and you want to, uh, use this new font or you might be in your favorite text editor and you want to have access to it. So you might think that you need to do your UI, this UI yourself and you would be wrong because the appropriate APIs to do that would only return system fonts. So if you start animating the list of installed fonts, OS for privacy reasons will only return you system fonts. And that's why Apple added UI font picker view controller. This can be used with or without the uh, use install font entitlement. Of course, if you use it without, it only use system fonts. If it use with, you can see user fonts. This is a view controller that is out of process. And also the, the user font is only available after selection. So your app will only see it through the typical like font, the CT font APIs after the user has selected. Oh yes, I really, really, really want that font for my text. So you really need to go through that, uh, font picker. That font picker, uh, uh allows you to do, uh, to do some customization. For example, you, uh, it can show face by default or not. You can define it's uh, what you see is what you get in interface. So it's not only the name, but it's really the name with the appropriate font showing it. There's also filtering option. Like if I want to see it by all the fonts with this trait, for example, I want to see all the monospace fonts or I want to see all the language, the fonts that support the specific languages. There are configurations and filtering options, uh, inside UI font picker view controller that lets you uh, tailor it to your exact needs. Of course, I did say that we wouldn't talk about Project Catalyst, but I'm kind of a bit forced to talk a bit about Project Catalyst here because of course this new ZPI is both available on iOS and on the Mac and it doesn't have the same look. On iOS, it is a model presentation using the new presentation API, uh, the new presentation style by default. So it's more or less a table view with uh, the details and you search, you can search, you can use the index bar. It's quite typical, like search UI for iOS. And on the Mac, it does the typical menu presentation for font that you might have seen in, um, I think I've, many I've seen that in pages, I would say, or even keynotes. Like a lot of Apple apps uses this menu. But the presenter made an important note about the fact that on the Mac, you do have UI font picker controller, but you also have the font panel. And the font panel is not available on iOS. It's really Mac specific. And it's really important to make sure that if you have custom text controls, that they also listen to those events because the font panel can stay open in your app and can trigger a lot more changes than the font picker. The font picker is really for the font. The font panel can change the text color, can change the font size, can give you more variants of a font, and that can be done really ad hoc versus pressing a button and doing something. So they provide the proper API to make sure you listen, and then you transform those modifications to a new NSTButed string without losing what you've modified on that, uh, already modified on that NSTButed string. So it's quite nice, but of course, uh, Making sure that you can use Mac functionality through IUI, uh, to UI kit on macOS. Last portion of that talk was a really project catalyst, uh, specific problem it is text scaling. So they mentioned that on iOS, the default text size, if you use the new 
text styles and you say I want a text body and iOS is using that text style a lot and uh, typical dynamic text size large which is the default one the font size at that point is 17 if you look at the typical um, font size on the Mac it is 13 and that's why they applied this uh, text scaling of 77% on the Mac they also let you um, choose which scaling behavior you want because they've added NS text scaling type, whether it's iOS or on the Mac, they call it standard. Uh, both are available in UIKit, whether you're on iOS or on the Mac. And they also added UI text view use standard text scaling uh, as a property. It's a Boolean and by default it is false, but using that, it will do the translation for you uh, and make sure that a font you set at one size on one side that it gets properly translated on the other side. They ended the presentation by talking about copy and paste because now they have added that copy and paste is visually consistent because they've added RTF support for that in the pasteboard on iOS Ooh. and also added new APIs in the, on NS attributed strings to transform an NS attributed string into a RTF format. They also talked a lot about how you should support all documents and they gave us a case study using what they've done with RTF because they use RTF a lot in the OS. But all of this is to say right now they've encode the text scaling format uh, in RTF so they can tell you, oh, all the fonts are in like iOS size and I, and you can yourself with NSTP strings or even your own stuff now either do the translation yourself. Of course, there's new APIs for that. But also, like I said, no, no, even if it says iOS, I always want standard in all my cases, whether it's on the iPad or phone. So they, they spent most of the text, the text scaling portion of that talk with examples of what you should do to attack all that and also, uh, make sure that your, there's proper document interchange support now, from now on in your apps, because you might have old documents that are not properly saved, that you need to adapt, and also you need to make sure that you can move from one side to the other with the same document uh, and have the same look. Even if the data read on the document might not be exactly the same when interpreted on each devices, that at least they can interpret it, quote-unquote, the same way, UI-wise. That's mainly yes for font and font management and text scaling. Um, I feel that a lot of people that are doing a lot of work on the iPad would really like would really like this new feature for the fonts um, it feels to me too that I know we do some some of our uh, the iOS team present meetings are done using keynotes and uh, we're using the work keynote format and it's uh, it's not we don't have the custom font install that he's using so it will also be useful for me but it was not something that usually go look into and like the text presentation on WWDC and it was uh, really interesting to just go look at like what's happening on the tech side of things on iOS and the Mac and that session was really good for that. Cool. Are we moving on to mine? Yes. All right. So we're going to end on a technical note with advances in app background execution. I'm going to let you go look up the number because I don't know what it is. I, rem I looked at it already and it's 707. So 707. Nice. Uh, so specifically, what do they mean by background execution? Well, they're talking about the app running when it's not in the foreground. Uh, they clarified that uh, they're not talking about background threads when the app is in the foreground. So why do we enter 
background execution because of a request in the app, uh, either a download, a periodic update, uh, finishing a task that was started in the foreground, or some sort of event trigger. This means maybe you entered a geofence or an important uh, region, or you have new health data and that triggers a notification to your app. They talked about like the three big pillars of designing background execution APIs. Uh, these are power, performance, and privacy. So starting up with power, when your app is running, it's using power, duh, and power has an impact on battery life, double duh. Uh, when designing background APIs, Apple tries to be mindful of how long the window of execution should be for the use case that it's specifically designed for. And if you finish early, generally you can tell the background APIs that you finished early and then your application gets suspended early to save on power. Then there's performance. Things need to stay smooth. Uh, fast app launches and responsive UI are paramount. Uh, so don't forget that your app is, isn't the only one that's running in the background. It could be running in the background while another app is in the foreground or multiple apps can be running in the background at once. Uh, and because of this, they set smart CPU and memory limits to limit the impact on other apps' performance. Uh, and your app should be taking, uh, should be aware of these limits so that it doesn't get terminated and takes longer to launch next time your app, your user goes to it. And then privacy. While a user may be aware of all the times that your app is in the foreground, they probably aren't as aware of all the time that your application is running in the background. So be transparent and let users know what data your app is using when it's in the background. Apple really designs background execution APIs around specific use cases, and each use case has its own balance of these three requirements that your application has to respect to actually get away with what it's trying to do. Um, and so they wanted to lay out some best practices for background execution. So they started this little uh, example app, which is a messaging app that can send messages, make calls, mute threads, and download past attachments. And each of these sort of uses a different API and they go through uh, the design notes that you should be going through when using these APIs. So let's start off with the send messages. Send messages is the core functionality of the app. Users expect immediate completion, and this might be the common case, but sometimes the network is congested or the server is being slow, and this can take additional time. But nothing's preventing the user from switching away to another app or locking their phone and going on with their day. Uh, so you need to protect the the task is being completed so that the message sends reliably every single time. And for this, they recommend the use of the background task completion uh, API, which has been around for quite a long time. Uh, this API gives apps additional runtime in the background. You can invoke it with UI application begin background task if you're in the main application, or if you're in an extension, you can use process info perform expiring activity instead. This is intended to complete work that started in the foreground, like saving things to disk or completing user invoked requests. If the task fails to complete within the window of time that was allotted to you, use the expiration handler to notify the user that the background operation failed via a local notification. And as I mentioned earlier, don't forget to end the background task from your completion handler so that the application can be suspended as soon as it's appropriate. The next functionality of their example app was making calls, and for this they suggest the use of the VoIP push notifications API. VoIP push notifications are a special kind of push notification that can launch your app so that you can present an appropriate UI for picking up a call. When registering for push notifications, set your PK push registry's desired push types to include the VoIP type of notification. And new in iOS 13, they added some new requirements because people were abusing this API. <laughs> Why am I not surprised? Of course they did. Uh, so 
Now, if you receive a PK push registry uh, VoIP notification, you must report an incoming call to CallKit with the did receive incoming push callback. If you don't, your application will be blacklisted from launching for VoIP pushes on that device because people were abusing the VoIP backgrounding API by saying, here's a call, and then doing something that is not VoIP and then not picking up the call that doesn't really exist. Uh, and so therefore, now you you sort of have to report to CallKit and then CallKit is going to be sort of at least keeping you accountable in the eyes of the users because these calls are actually going to be showing up in their call history now if you're trying to do weird shit with backgrounding. There are some more uh, granular tips uh, for users like set caller info in the push payload so that all of the info is immediately available to present a call UI and not having to go look things up through an API before you can actually present the UI and all that stuff. Uh, be sure to set your VoIP notifications to APNS expiration zero, which is deliver immediately or fail. Otherwise, you might send a push notification to a user and they'll see it seven minutes later after the call is no longer ringing and it doesn't really have a point. Uh, if you prefer your calls be presented with uh, notification banners instead of a full screen takeover, just use a standard push notification. Uh, and of course, if you use end-to-end encryption for your messaging service, you can use uh, notification service extensions to swap the encrypted contents of your notification with decrypted contents. Next up is muting threads. And I thought this was a weird example for uh, app functionality because like the implication with muting threads is that you don't want to be notified, right? Um, but it turns out that you might have many uh, discussion threads going on. And while you might not want to be notified of changes within those specific threads, you still want that content to be downloaded in the background so that it's available as soon as the user opens the app. So for this, they recommend the use of background pushes. Uh, background pushes are notifications that are sent with content available equals one in the payload and without an alert, sound, or badge set to it. Um, and this is just a push notification that serves as a hint to the system to indicate that new content is available so that it can schedule a content fetch in a more timely manner. Uh, note that this does not guarantee that the content fetch will be immediate. It just means that the application is aware that it has content to fetch and it will schedule it sooner, uh, but not necessarily immediately. And last is downloading past attachments. So the example they gave for this, because I thought it was kind of weird, like downloading patch, past attachments sounds like something that the user would invoke when they tap on an attachment. It doesn't really sound like something that should be running in the background. But the context they gave for it is you're opening a messaging app for the first time on a freshly restored device and like immediately when you're launching that application, you're going to download a snapshot of what are recent messages, but you may want to download past attachments so that they're on the user's device already when they go to go check their threads. Uh, and you might want to defer that until after the user leaves the app to not impact the responsiveness of the app. And for this, they recommend the use of discretionary background URL sessions. Uh, this is a special kind of background URL session Uh that was made for deferred downloads and provides info to the system for smarter scheduling of those downloads. Uh, you give it timeout intervals, so how long more or less you expect the download will take, the time window for roughly when you want the download to take place, and the suggested workload size. And then the uh, background URL session API is going to use all of these factors together to actually try to schedule a time window of a varying size for you to actually do that download. Um, so other example use cases you could use for this is batching up your analytics uploads uh, once per day or whatever, or uh, uploading photos to the cloud. 
And then they got out the big new thing, the shiny big new thing, which is the background tasks framework, which handles new additional use cases which are not available in previously available APIs. And there are mainly two big things you can do with this. And the primary use case for this is deferrable maintenance work. So actively syncing state to a cloud service, database cleanup, backups to the cloud. Uh, right now, people are abusing of the background task API. Uh, what I mean is the, the background completion API that I mentioned earlier to complete these tasks as soon as the app enters the background. But wouldn't it be nice if you could take all of these maintenance tasks and defer them until much later when the device is charging and idle uh, so that you can actually use less power while the user is out and about on battery? And that's what Background Tasks API is primarily for. It's available in iOS, iPadOS, tvOS, and iPad apps on the Mac. And it has two modes. It has Background Processing Tasks mode and Improved Background App Refresh Tasks. The background processing task mode gives your application several minutes of runtime at system-friendly times. This is primarily going to be used for maintenance work in your application, or you can also use it for core ML training and inference, uh, which is a new functionality in iOS 13. This is the really interesting part about this. Uh, because these background processing tasks are going to be happening when the device is hooked up to power, you have the ability to disable the watchdog CPU monitor for especially intensive work during the duration of your task, which means you can use the full extent of the hardware during these background processing tasks. This sounds Whoa. a lot like what uh, uh, the Photos app uses to do uh, intense computation of your Photos library when you've just restored a device. Um, similar thing, except now it's available to any arbitrary application. Um there is, however, one restriction, which is you can do these tasks as long as the background processing task was scheduled when the app was in the foreground or if your application was used recently. And we will talk more about that in a few minutes. There's also improved background app refresh. It's a new API with same policies as the previous app refresh API. So you get 30 seconds of runtime to keep the user's app up to date throughout the day. How often your application is launched is based on the user's usage patterns and less frequently used apps don't get as much frequent requests, uh, refreshes. The UI application fetch API is deprecated and not supported on the Mac. So you should be using this one if you want to, uh, bring your app to the Mac in some fashion. And for all of these, uh, background tasks, you're going to be, uh, interfacing with BG task scheduler, which is your interface to the activity scheduler, which monitors battery level, app usage, connectivity, and other factors. So what your application has to do is submit a BG task request to the scheduler from the foreground app or from its extensions while it's running. When the system decides it's appropriate for your task to begin, your app is going to be woken up and given a BG task instance corresponding to your original request. Your app can now perform whatever it wanted to do. And then when you're done, you can set the task as complete. When all tasks are complete, the app is suspended. If you schedule multiple requests, it's possible that the application will send you multiple of these at once. However, time is allotted by per, uh, time is allotted by app launch, not by task. So you need to be able to do these things concurrently in the same window of time, or else you're just going to get killed. And even if extensions sent the original BG task request, the BG task is going to be sent to the main containing application, never extensions. Um, there are some additional considerations to take into account. So the first thing is there's an earliest begin date you can pass when um, scheduling a task. 
you shouldn't set that date too far in the future. And the reason for this is if your user doesn't launch that app around that date, you might suddenly fall outside the set of recently used apps. And if you're not a recently used apps, your tasks are not getting scheduled. So you need to keep your earliest begin date within a week of the date you scheduled it. Otherwise, you risk falling out of that usage set of applications. Ensure that files are accessible while the device is locked, because that is generally going to be when your maintenance tasks are going to be executed. So for this, use file protection type complete until first user authentication. This is where we bring in multiple windows on the iPad. Applications which use UI scenes, which is the name of each of these individual windows, uh, should call UI application request scene session refresh after these jobs execute. This notifies the system that the screenshot of the scene must be updated in the multitasking app switcher. Uh, this is primarily meant for the uh, background download API because if you've got new content, you want the snapshot in the multitasking app switcher to reflect that new content. Um, it probably isn't as important for the maintenance tasks like database cleanup because that's not going to really have an impact on what the user sees but definitely call this if there is a visual change to your application that needs to be reflected in the multitasking app switcher and last but not least uh, bg task scheduler submit is a blocking call so if you're calling it on app launch like many people are probably going to definitely consider doing it in a background thread so that app launches are fast and do not block while you schedule your maintenance tasks and that's it for the session it's rather short but it was pretty sweet um one of my main complaints about the best practices section of this session was that half of it was reliant on push notifications. And I guess it kind of makes sense because uh, push notifications are a way to uh, trigger background uh, activity in your application. But there are so many other uh, background APIs that do not rely on pushes that I feel were undercovered in this session. Um, it kind of wasn't as useful, as practically useful as I had hoped, ho hoped to. Um, but the background task framework is very interesting, especially the part where you can just like take the limiter off the CPU and just like go crazy in the middle of the night. Like that sounds great. Uh, it's when your iPhone goes street racing in the middle of the night. Uh, it's pretty great. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you get to see what limitation they'll put on that. Like how many times you can ask for that or if there's like app limits or. Yeah. I think that really the main limitation is if you try to use too much of it because you're scheduling too many tasks at once. Um, you're just not going to be able to execute within the amount of time you're given. Mm. Because like I said, you have to do these things concurrently. Uh, you can't just do them serially and get like five minutes for each one. It yeah, has yeah. to execute in the same five minute window. So I guess that's going to be the main limitation. Um, I'm also kind of intrigued about like the core ML inference thing, because it kind of means that you can continue to train models on device, which was one of the rumored features for core ML this year. Um, but being able to do that during the nighttime while the user isn't using their device so it doesn't become a giant fireball in their pocket is going to be pretty cool. Good. I And that's the last session for our WBC Recap Extravaganza. So I invite you to go watch them. We'll put the link to all of them in the show notes also. Uh, since now, once you'll listen to this podcast, all the WBC sessions are out. I also invite you to go to the interesting one that you like. Please, please, please don't install the betas yet. Maybe wait for the public beta. I think that's might be the last comment I have to say uh, for this episode. 
which Apple said should be in July. So maybe stay tuned for that before installing the uh, beta. By the way, if you're courageous enough, uh, now they don't provide the, the, the mobile profile settings file no more. You really need to go through iTunes and restore. So yeah, your mileage may vary on that. But I think no, but I think that's on purpose though. It's really to make sure that it's only like dedicated people that do it. It's like harder to do, quote unquote. <laughs> because they say you need to have either Xcode 11 installed or Catalina installed to go to do it through iTunes. So you need to have mm. the latest device support. So I feel that they, because they also don't, like you said, there's the, the thrill seeker note too. So I really feel that they did that with iTunes mainly to make sure that normal people like just like curious tech journalists are not on the beta for no reason i mean they've all done it like i've seen mkbhd's uh, yes. video on ipad os yes, 13 they've still all done it but at least uh at, at least on apple side you can say it's a bit harder now and it's like you should use the developer tools to make it happen so yeah we'll see well, i guess we'll see in about a month in july when the public beta launches yes we will is that it it is it awesome so if you want to find all of the links to various sessions and maybe documentation about stuff we were talking about throughout the episode, you can go to limitlesspossibility.net slash 114. Is that right? Yeah, you're correct. Uh, You can find all of our episodes at limitlesspossibility.net. You can also find the podcast on Twitter at limipo underscore podcast. That's L-I-M-I-P-O underscore podcast. And you can find us individually on Twitter. I'm at Sakurina. That's S-A-K-U-R-I-N-A. And you can find Ducadivy at Lukonosh, that's L-U-C-C-O-N-O-U-C-H-E. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you in two weeks.